A Christian who is a Christian should know what God's Word says about the church. That is the truth. So what I'd like you to do, um, just for maybe 30 seconds, turn to the person to your side, and when I say the word church, what pops into your head? Go ahead. What pops into your head? All right. What were were some of the things that was mentioned? Just go ahead and yell them out. When you think of church, what pops into your head? Pews. Pews. People. People. What else? One. One. What else? Pastors. Community. Community. What? Bride. Body. Fellowship. Worship. Good. These are cross life. (laughs) You know, I think um, it's funny as a lot of people will say, yeah, I'm a Christian. But then when it comes to talking about the church, people start to get a little bit sketchy, even amongst Christians. A lot of people, they have various things and opinions to say about the church. I was online and um, there was uh, all these responses of uh, why people don't go to church. AJ, there's like a weird echo. Thanks, man. Okay. If I need to use another one, just let me know. Okay, thank you. I wanted to read a few to you. Listen to this. It's called Set Free. For 35 years, I have struggled to go to church. I'm not a singer. I'm a bit of an introvert. And every week, I force myself to mix and be part of of the church group. It finally dawned on me that God was not asking this sacrifice of me, and I have stopped going. For the first time in my life, I am actually I'm actively enjoying being a follower of Jesus and have tremendous peace, joy, and happiness. It is as though I have been set free to live my life and I have no longer feel depressed. I feel that I'm serving God properly at, at long last by being a peaceful, loving, kind presence in the world rather than depressed, harassed, a bundle of nerves. I've learned a lot from the church, but in the end, for my sanity, I had to leave. What do you think about that? Does a Christian, should a Christian go to church? Does he need to go to church? I bet you guys have tossed that around in your heads. Here's another one. This is called ex-pucitor. I don't go to church because those people think they're better than me. They manipulate the masses for money. They look down their nose at me. I hate them. When I attend, I start feeling hate, frustration, anger, and I have to run out. I can't stand church. I went for seven years back in the 80s with the church split, and they were fighting. They're a bunch of phonies. I would like to find God. Hopefully, he's not like the church. Isn't that interesting? What do you think God thinks about the church? This person, in their mind, I, they, they, they say, you know, I hope the church is nothing like God. I hope God is nothing like the church. And I'll admit, with as many people in this room, you guys probably come from a varied background of churches and a varied background of experiences Good and bad. But what does God say about the church? 
Another one, I'll just read part of it. And I hear this one a lot. It is, um, I don't go to church because I am the church. I used to go. I used to be on the worship team. I was spiritual. But after all said and done, it was all a lie. Yeah, I had an issue then and still do, and I'm growing and learning. But one thing is for sure. Jesus died so we can be free. Freedom from man's religion. Freedom from lies. Freedom to, to be who God created us to be. The Bible says to have fellowship. I do. I have tons of friends who are believers and worship God. I learn from a lot of older Christian men at work. And then it goes on, but I, I don't need to read the rest of it. I think a lot of people do this, too. They say, um, I don't need to go to church. I, I listen to podcasts. I get my preaching there. I listen to music in the car. I get my worship singing in the car. And I, I have some buddies over at my house. I don't need to go. There's a, um, a, a guy who's a bishop of Carthage. His name is Cyprian. It's an interesting quote. He said, and this is going to swing the other way. If God is your father, the church must be your mother. Ooh, that's a bold statement. And what he's saying is, is that if you call yourself a believer, a son of God, you cannot separate yourself from the church. They are intricately connected. Do you buy that? Or is that too strong for you? What does God say? Let's look in his word this evening. Um, enough of man's opinions. Uh, we're going to be looking this evening. Tanner, do you have those sheets? Cool. Could you guys pass those out? We're going to be looking at the three things in Scripture that God calls the church. The first one is a building. The second one is a bride. And the third one is a body. And I believe that with each one of those, there's a mandate or something to learn and to grow in. The body would be to grow strong. The building would be to grow strong and straight. The bride, we're going to learn about his deep love and his affection. And the body is to be or to do. It's to go and do. I was reading um, in Scripture this past week on the church, and uh, I came across uh, a portion that I'd like to, to share with you a little bit here. I'll wait for these guys to get everything passed out so there's no more distraction. Pretty simple little outline, and I just wanted to give you guys something to write on so that if there's some Scripture... You want to write down, or some of the what we're going to go over, you can write them down, you won't forget them. How many things on a Sunday do you hear, and it goes in one ear and out the other? Okay, I want you to picture this. See if you can remember where this is in Scripture. True story. A long time ago, God took a rock. A large rock. And he placed it on the earth. He put it on the earth. And there was nothing at all special about the rock. It was common. It wasn't shiny. 
And men saw the rock, and they cast it aside. They didn't want any part of it. And once they cast it down, and they cast it aside, God took the rock, and he picked the rock up, And he used that rock for a cornerstone to his house. Now the rock started to grow. And it didn't grow into one huge rock. It grew into a building. A building that was comprised of a whole bunch of other rocks called living stones that were all built and stacked on and according to this rock. And this rock that grew into a building, which actually wasn't just a building, it was a temple. And these rocks weren't just rocks. They were people. So this building that's actually a temple on, that was made on this cornerstone with a whole bunch of other stones, which are actually people, but they're not just people. The people are actually priests. Okay? You got this visual? But these priests that are stones on this stone, and the stones are people, and the people are actually priests, they're not just limited to the wall. They're not just stuck in the wall. See, they're actually serving in the temple. That's a crazy vision. Okay? If that doesn't blow your mind, listen to this. These stones that are people, that are priests, that are serving in the temple, that's made up of themselves, do you know what they're serving? Romans 12.1 says, In view of the mercies of God, I urge you, I beg you, to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, for this is your reasonable act of worship. Where is what I told you just found? That whole picture. I didn't just make it up. Do you remember? Go to, um, go to 1 Peter chapter 2. What I just described is one of the biblical views of God's temple, or you could call it His church. We'll start with um, 2 and go to, go to verse 4. Coming to Him, which is, this is Christ, coming to Him as to a living stone, stones, in Scripture are very important. If you remember that one song, maybe Nate knows it, Here I Raise My Ebenezer. Remember that? It's, um, and the Ebenezer is the stone of remembrance. And it means like, hitherto the Lord has helped us. Let's remember the Lord was faithful. And what Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and David and all these people, what they would do is they would go to a place, like, for instance, um, God would make a promise. And then God would come true in that promise. And they would place 
a stone so that we will not forget that the Lord was faithful. Stones are a big deal. But this is not just some stone. This is a dead stone. The one in here is called a living stone. And the stone, it should make you think, wait a second, we're going to talk about God being faithful. Coming to him as to a living stone. Now this stone, listen, was rejected indeed by men, but chosen by God and precious. For you also as living stones are being built up a spiritual house, a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture. And this is, I believe it's Isaiah 28, 16. Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect, precious. He who believes on him will by no means be put to shame. Check this out. If, if you get a chance sometime, go to Isaiah 28, 16. You see, the, chief, the cornerstone was the most important stone of the whole building. It's, it was plumb. It was square. I think I have those right. And all of the other stones were built according to that one stone. If this stone, and this is not plumb nor square. It's the best one I could find by my house. Um, All the other stones were laid according to this stone. If this stone was off, the other stones would go further off and further off and further off. And the house would not have any integrity. It would fall down. This chief chief cornerstone was perfect. In Isaiah 28, it says that um, justice, is this plumb? Yeah? This is justice, and it says that, what is this again? Square is righteousness. Study that out. It's pretty cool, because with the chief cornerstone, we are just before our God. And according to men, we live a righteous life. According to God, we live a righteous life. Check that out in Scripture, Isaiah twenty-eight sixteen. That's Jesus Christ. Here's you. Let's read on here. Coming to him as to, as to a living stone rejected by men and chosen by God and precious, you also are living stones. You're no longer dead. A Christian who has been built and hewn and weaven into this stone is no longer a dead man. He's alive in Christ. He's a living stone. And a stone stands for what? God is faithful. Here I raise my Ebenezer. Hitherto the Lord has helped us. God's been faithful. He did just what he said. He brought the chief cornerstone. Now these living stones are being built up into a spiritual house. You know whose house it is? It's God's house. What a house. I mean, God, he's a craftsman there. He uses people. To dwell in, for he does not dwell in temples. You guys know that. He dwells in the, in, the, in, in the lives of his people. Are being built up into a spiritual house, a holy priesthood. You're not just living stones. You're also, you're, you are, as a priest, you can go before the throne boldly at any time. Because you are connected to this stone. 
Let's move on. To offer up a spiritual sacrifice. What do we offer up? We offer up ourselves. Not as a dead sacrifice like the Old Testament, like goats and bulls and lambs, but living sacrifices. Read Romans 12 sometime. That's what we do. That's what the picture of church is. Therefore, it is also contained in the scripture, Behold, I lay in Zion a chief cornerstone, elect precious. What's the most important part of this structure? It's the chief cornerstone. Guys, that is why Tanner and I and the pastors in the church and anybody who loves the Lord, they get this stone right. When it comes to the doctrine of who Jesus is, you got to get this stone right. When Tanner was kind of, you may thought he was being nitpicky when he said, this is what salvation is. It's not just a prayer. It's not just a walk down the aisle. It's not just a this or that. If you don't get this stone right, the house loses its integrity. It's not salvation. And if you, if you tweak this rock a little bit and you say, well, wasn't, wasn't Jesus just a good man? That house will fall down. And if you say, well, wasn't he? Some will say, you know, Jesus was our elder brother. He was actually a brother of Satan. You tweak the rock, the house falls down. When Scripture says you go to Christ and Christ alone, and men say yes, and a priest. You tweak the stone, the house falls down. And if you say, well, he was anything other than what Scripture says, and you make that rock so that it is not the chief cornerstone, and the law of the angle is that truth will get further and further and further apart, and it will fall down. And here's the scary part, is that you'll find out that you're not even in this house. You're in a whole other house. It's not the house of God, because it's not built on this stone. That's a powerful picture of what the church is. The church is the place for a Christian who was built on this stone to grow straight and to grow strong. Man, I love the church. Let's, um, let's keep moving on. The second thing we're going to look at. Well, first, let me back up because Jesus talked about this too. Um. I think a lot of times some of the things that we just talked about with getting this right may offend people. And if you read right here in 1 Peter 2, it says the stone in 2.7, a stone which the builder rejected has become the chief cornerstone. Listen to this. And a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. Jesus, people stumble over Jesus. They don't get him right, they stumble over him. He is an offense He's not who we want him to be. He is who he is. You can't, you can't mess with the integrity of what Scripture says Jesus is. Jesus says in um, Matthew twenty two forty four. this is powerful, and whoever falls on the stone will be broken, but whoever it falls, it will grind him to powder. What is that talking about? If you come to Jesus and you fall on him, and you say, Lord, forgive me. 
I need you. I put my faith in you. You will be broken. But if you stumble over him and the rock falls on you, the rock of judgment falls on you, it will crush you to powder. That's the chief cornerstone. That's powerful. Um, Could you show that picture for me, AJ? I want to look at the second thing that the church is. That's my wife (laughs) of uh, 13 years. That's pretty cool. Praise the Lord. Who is in Maryland right now at her grandfather's funeral. I'm going to join her tomorrow. If you think about it, you can pray for us. Um, One of the neatest things is uh, when you're at a wedding is to watch the presentation of the bride. Everybody stands and everybody looks. And the next thing they look at when they see that bride is what? The groom. What are they looking for? He just lights up. Man, I remember being like on the altar and like seeing my wife walk down, well, no, my fiance, walking down the aisle and just, just beaming. She looked so beautiful. And I loved going to Rick and Julia's wedding. And I was in the back row where Jesse's at and I was looking at Julia, looking at Rick. And I had to stand up my toes. And uh, just seeing how beautiful Julia looked in her white dress and then watching Rick. And Rick's tearing up. I can't wait to see Brooke walk down the aisle and to see Tanner's big grin on his face. There's just something special about that. Like there is something beautiful about a wedding. Let's go to... um, Let's go to Ephesians 5. By the way, next week, we're going to be talking about marriage here for just a brief segment. I hope it stirs up some questions in you. Next week, we're going to have a relationship panel like my brother Deontay mentioned. Jot some questions down and shoot them to either your community group leader or to Tanner and I or Facebook or something so that we can get those questions up there for the panel to answer. Let's, um, let's read Ephesians 5, and we'll start in 22. Wives. <laughs> Submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. For the husband is the head of the wife, as also Christ is the head of the church. And he is the Savior of the body. Therefore, just As the church is subject to Christ, so let the wives be to their own husbands in everything. Husbands, love your wives, just as Christ loved, also loved the church and gave himself for her, that he might sanctify and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word, that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. So husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as the Lord does the church. And we could keep going on here. Let's keep going on here. For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. And for this reason a man shall leave his father and his mother and shall be joined to his wife. And the two shall become one flesh. 32. This is a great mystery. But I speak concerning the church and and Christ. 
Nevertheless, let each one of you in particular so love his own wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. What's this about? Somebody just yell out loud. What's this about? Christ in the church. church. Right. What's this about? And? And marriage. It's about two things. It's about Christ in the church, and it's about marriage. It's, um, this is instruction and demonstration of how real love functions. And I'll be honest with you, when it comes to love, I am slow. And I know all you guys out there, you think you're Romeos, and I did too. And then I found out that I was way off on how real love actually looks. Oh, my culture had taught me well, and my flesh had said, yeah, that's right. And then I found out when I got married that I was a poor lover. I needed help. Christ is that, I hold a title now that Christ holds perfectly for himself. Husband. That's intimidating, but it's a good example. Let's learn a little bit here. This is about marriage. This is about instruction for marriage and demonstration of how Christ did and does love his church perfectly. The three demonstrations of love that I want you to remember are submission, sacrifice, and service. These are the the three things that men and women are instructed for true love in marriage is submission, sacrifice, and service. Verse 22, I kind of started out there being a little bit facetiously. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. And I'll start talking to the the women first. What do you guys think about submission? Does that bother you? In, In culture, in the world, in my flesh, I don't like submission. Because I think that submission means value. I think that submission means lesser value. Oh, that's so not true. Let me ask you this. In the Godhead, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, who's the best? Who's the most important? Be careful. They are equally God. If you start to tweak the importance in the Godhead of who is more important than the other, you can't do that. God is the same. But within the Godhead, there is submission. You remember what Christ said in the garden, not my will, but your will? Do you remember who sent the Holy Spirit? Christ sent the Holy Spirit. God sent the Son. Within the Godhead, there is perfect submission. You need to teach your heart that submission is not a bad thing. I need to teach my heart that too. Wives, submit to your own husbands in this little phrase, as to the Lord. In the illustration of marriage, who put husbands as the head of the home? God did. If we wrestle with that submission, 
to our husbands, you were wrestling with the, with the God who put him there. You get that? If, if me and Deontay, we're brothers, and uh, mom tells Deontay, hey, could you tell Andy to call me? And I go, no, I ain't going to give mom a call. I don't got no time to do that. Who did I just slight? Deontay? No, I slighted mom. If Christ says, husbands, you're the head of the home, and the wife says, who do you think you are the head of me? You've slighted Christ. And I love this right here. It's as to the Lord. That means that when you submit to your husband, who are you submitting to? You're submitting to Christ. So one, you're imitating Christ. Two, you're loving Christ. Stick that in your back pocket until you get married someday. That's a good thing to remember. Now guys, before you get arrogant, go one verse up. 21 says, submitting to one another in the fear of God. You see, a perfect marriage, the one that honors God, is not just one person submitting to the other person who's got this. He, he just does his own thing. You see, true love is otherness. I want to teach you about otherness. Biblical love is, if you go to 1 Corinthians 13, the love chapter, you will find absolutely no provision for you. It has everything to do with the other. True love is about the other person. It's not about you. Um, Let's make this a little bit more practical. If you are in a, a, a dating situation, if a man really loves this woman then he will do whatever it takes for her to be right before the Lord because she is under her father and she's under the Lord. Ladies, if a guy ever asks you to compromise that relationship, your purity and your holiness before the Lord, he does not love you. You know who he loves? He loves himself. What if it's mutual? What, what if we're both physically involved Okay, how does that work then? You have two people who are mutually loving themselves. That's a great foundation for a relationship there. You see, true love is otherness. It's thinking of the other person. How can I protect their purity, their integrity, their holiness before God? It's not about me. That's a high calling. That's the otherness of love. Um, that's going to take us into, um, let me see. The, oh, the, this is good. The irony of otherness. Here, here's the irony of when you love and you seek the other person's highest good. When I serve my wife, when I think of her and I serve her and I love her, do you know what it does to me? I've got to serve my wife again. No, it produces great joy. 
great joy. And I'm not even, I'm not seeking my joy. I'm seeking my wife's joy. But when I seek her joy and her satisfaction and I see her grow before the Lord, you know what it does to me? It boosts my joy. And then when you have a wife who is seeking her husband's joy and she receives joy, and you have a husband who's seeking his wife's joy, and he's, man, that's good. You see, I give my wife, I smooch my wife because that's the best thing for her. Think about that. (laughs) Anyways, it's otherness. Love is otherness. It's not about you. Not biblical love. That's going to lead us into the next one. Sacrifice. Husbands, love your wives just as, um, just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her. How does Christ demonstrate the love of otherness in verse 25? He, he shows it by expressing the greatest love possible. No greater love than this, than what? You tell me. Do you know? Then a man, say it with me, then a man lay down his life for his friend. That's what Christ did for his bride. The, the, the greatest love, the otherness love. Um, how does he seek her joy? And he receives great joy. Do you remember what Hebrews 12, 2 says? Looking unto Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, and for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. You see, when Christ put, down, put aside, not my will, but your will, Father, and for the love of his Father and for the love of the church, he looked at the cross. You know what that cross looked like? For her joy and for the Lord's glory, Hebrews says Christ received joy. That's powerful. When Christ went to the cross, he received joy. That's not the joy that you're normally thinking of, is it? That's what Hebrews 12 says. Hebrews 12, 2. For the joy set before him, who in, he endured the cross. And then the last one, service. Submission, sacrifice, and service. How does Jesus serve the church? Look at verse 26. That he, he might sanctify, he might help her grow and cleanse her. Christ keeps the church clean. How does he do that? With the washing of the, the water by the word. Christ helps the church grow and he keeps her clean by giving us his word. That's how it's done. What happens? That he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having a spot or a wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy and without blemish. Do you know what the church will look like someday? Beautiful. Right now, we're, we're kind of rat, rat-tat. We're not that pretty at times. People have strong opinions of the church. Because we're, the church is filled with a bunch of sinners. Like me. 
But the Lord loves the church. And he's, he's washing her. And he's helping her grow. And she's limping along. But he, he walks with her. And the end product is he's going to present her to himself. And she's going to be beautiful. She's beautiful, one, because of his words. She's beautiful, two, because of his actions. He died for her. His word purifies her. Guys, listen to this next verse and underline it. For no, um, so husbands ought to love their own wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. And I, I speak to you guys who are married and who are, want to be married, that your actions and your words will have a profound effect on your wife's beauty. Do you get that? Just as Christ's words and his actions present a beautiful bride, a husband as the head of his home will speak loving, kind, encouraging, godly words to his wife, and she will be beautiful. And his actions of sacrifice and service, she will be beautiful. Maybe you guys should tweak your idea of beauty. And here's what I mean. Here's what we think. I'm going to go find a beautiful wife because she's going to be my trophy. And who's that about? That's about you. Maybe you should think this way. I'm going to find a wife who loves the Lord and with my Lord help me with my words and with my actions. She will be a beautiful wife before the Lord. Maybe you need to tweak your idea of beautiful. I know you do. I do. That's a high calling. Paul in verse 32 says, this is a great mystery. But you know what? We're not talking about marriage here. You know what we're talking about? We're talking about the church. Marriage is the illustration. Um, What's the point of this passage? Do Do you get the point? Here's the point. Jesus loves the church. He loves the church. It's his lover. It's his bride. His greatest affections are for the church. For I don't know how long in my life my affections were set on so many other things. And I was so much more excited about what I was doing in life and then I realized by reading God's Word and some other helpful books that my affections were in a different line than the affections of Christ. And I thought, I need to change. Because if I call myself a Christian, I should love the same things that Christ loves. You ever think about that? Do you love the same things that Christ loves? If you do, you will love the church. Ephesians 5 is about the big point tonight is that Jesus loves the church. It's his bride. The last one we're going to talk about. And we've gone over this one before, but we'll go over it again and maybe expand on it a little bit more. Body. Christ, and you can... Oh, thank you. Um... 
Jesus calls the church his body. Ephesians 5, 30, for we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. There is so much in Ephesians that talks about the church being the body of Christ. I'd like you to think about something for a second. That the God of Scripture has always been present among His people. He has always had a close relationship with His people. You think of Adam and Eve, and God walked in the garden with them. And you think of Abraham, and God walked and made a covenant with Abraham. And you think of Moses, and he says that Moses talked with God as a one talks with his friend. That's awesome. And you think of King David and how he, he prayed before the Lord. And he prayed, Lord, please do not take your Holy Spirit from me. And you think about the prophets and how the Lord spoke through the prophets consistently to his people. He was not absent. You think about the temple, the Holy of Holies, where God dwelled. And then you look at Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you see the Matthew at the beginning and Luke at the beginning, and you see Emmanuel. What does Emmanuel mean? Christ with us. God with us. And God comes in the form, Philippians 2 says, in the form of a man. He humbled himself. And God, the eternal God, the all-present God, slips on a man suit, and he comes into his creation, and for a period of time, he walks among men like you walk among each other. And while he was here, he spoke words of healing. He loved people, loved the sinners. He directed people towards the kingdom and for the glory of the Lord. He called people to repent from sin. And then men crucified him. The big picture is that God crushed him. And then God raised him from the dead. And then the last thing that, he, that, that Christ says once he was risen from the dead in Matthew 28 is to go out into all the world teaching men to observe the things that I have commanded them. If I could just phrase that in a little nut, it would be do what I did. And lo, I am with you always, even unto the end of the age. I am with you. Jesus said, I am with you. Here's a question for you. Where's Jesus? If God has always been present among his people, and when he left, he says, I am with you always. And that's not a metaphor. Where is Jesus at? Well, if you look at Romans 8, and you look at Hebrews chapter 1, you will say he is at the right hand of the Father. You'd be absolutely right. The person of Christ is with the Father at the right hand, and he is ruling and reigning in heaven. Well, then what, what did he mean when he said, I am with you? You see, if you could, and you, you think back to Ephesians 5, and it says that we are his body, his bones, and his flesh. And Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. He is the head. 
and the Holy Spirit submits to him and he sends out the Holy Spirit. And where does the Holy Spirit do? He works in you and he convicts you of sin and he points you to worship the son and he is in the believer. So you have the head, you have the central nervous system. And then you have you. You know what you are? You are the bones in the flesh. You are what is seen of the body. I used this illustration before. In Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus steps into his creation and he puts on a man suit. And we were able to see him for a time. And then he left. And then in Acts, Jesus puts on another man suit. But it's not just one man. It is the church. The church is God incarnate. The church is what we see of Jesus Christ. The church is controlled through the Holy Spirit by the head who is Jesus Christ. So what does that mean? What does that look like? Do you remember what, just, to, just to, to make you think a little bit about that, what did Jesus say to Saul on the road to Tarsus when Saul was out trying to kill and persecute Christians? He gets knocked off his horse, a bright light shines, and Jesus says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? Jesus was receiving persecution in the flesh through his church. Why do you persecute me? You see that? So what does that look like? One, 1 John, it looks like the church should love. It should love each other. You should, if you look around this room and you see believers or you think of your church back home or you're at a church here on a Sunday morning and you look around that room, you should have a profound love for the people that you see. Not for who you see necessarily, because you may not even know them, but for who they are in Christ. Because of that common bond and the unity of the Spirit that you are in the same body. You should love each other. John says it doesn't even make sense if you don't love each other. John, in John 17, it says, Lord, help them to be one as me and you are one. As, as Christ and the Father are one, Lord, help them to be one. That's how tight our unity should be. And would you ever say that there's any schism or, or separation in the Godhead? Of course you wouldn't, and there shouldn't be between us either. And if there is, you need to go to your brother or your sister and say, please forgive me. This ain't right. The second thing is it should be Matthew 28. You know, Jesus didn't stop working when he went to heaven. He commissioned his body. He commissioned his body to go into all the world and make disciples, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded. Obey the word. Do what I did. Do you see that? 
What are the consequences? The consequences to say that you are a Christian, but you are separate, you are not committed to the church, is I've told you this before, it's airy thinking. It's arrogant, it's ignorant, and it's ridiculous. And I don't mean to poke you, but I'm going to poke you. It's arrogant because what you are saying is that you are your own little body. And it's all about you. It's, it's not a, the, If you think that you're going to do something apart from the church, man, that's arrogant. As if it's all about you or it's all about me. You read 1 Corinthians, what, 12? And you will see that it is a body. We talk about hands and feet and eyes. It's got parts. They are connected. It's ignorant. Why is it ignorant? And I don't mean that as a slander. I mean that is because you're not going to find it in Scripture. That's a man-centered idea. You know where you got that? Your heart. The heart is deceitfully wicked. We get that from ourselves because we think the world revolves around us. You will not find that I can do my own thing apart from the church in Scripture, or what Jesus taught. It's ridiculous. You look at 1 Corinthians 12 and Romans 12, 5, and you will see that the body must function together. The, the, the thumb is no good if it's laying on the floor by itself. The thumb exists for the hand. And when they work together, they have a grip. But if you think you're just by yourself and you're the church by yourself, that would be like me cutting off my thumb and laying it on the floor, and you walk by and you see my thumb, and you go, I wonder why Andy's laying there. He's just laying on the floor. No, that's not Andy laying on the floor. That's my thumb. It's a part of me. It's not me. It's disconnected from me. It's ridiculous. Of course you wouldn't say that. You wouldn't invite my thumb over for dinner. You know? You would want Andy to come over for dinner, maybe. Does that make sense? No, it doesn't make sense. I love to think about that when Paul talks about that each of us are members of one another. Don't don't rob one another of what the Lord has given and gifted you in. If you're suffering, if you're going through things, If you are rejoicing, don't rob your brothers and sisters of what the Lord is doing. The Lord has sovereignly allowed you to go through something to benefit not just you, but to benefit the whole body. Um, I'll close with this. You guys have heard of Goldilocks. Goldilocks, she goes to the three bears house, you know, and she lays in the... No, first she gets the porridge. And she's like, this porridge is too cold. And then she gets the next porridge, and she's like, this porridge is too hot. And then the next porridge, she's like, this porridge is just right. And she eats it all up. And then she goes upstairs, and she's like, this bed is too hard. She gets in the next bed, this bed is too soft. And then she gets in the next, this bed is just right. 
And here's what we hear. This church is too big. This church is too small. This church don't have drums. You know, this church just sings hymns. Goldilocks, quit your complaining. Seriously. This is, I want to tell you something. I want to enlighten me, Andy. It's not about you. Church is not about you. You have a building. What's the most part of that building? If it wasn't for this stone, there'd be no building. Church is about the chief cornerstone. You have a marriage, and you get this husband whose name is Jesus, and he dies and beautifies his wife. It's not about you. It's about that husband. And you've got this body, and the head is Christ. And the head sends down through the central nervous system of the Holy Spirit, and it empowers the hands and, and the rest of the body to go and to do his work. If you, didn't give it, if you sever the head, you've got nothing. You've got a dead man. Church is not about you. It's about Jesus. I want to encourage you. It's so easy to attend, but to not commit. It's so easy to be a part from church. You need to be a part of church. A lot of you... And right now you're, you're, you're at school, and there's a lot of churches here. A lot of neat churches that you, you may choose from. You may go home then to, maybe you don't have a good church. You don't like the pastor. You don't like the way they lead songs. But you know what, guys? There's more to church than just you don't like the style of teaching. Or you don't like the music. The church is a... It's one, it's about the glory of the Lord, and two, it's about loving the body. Um, the building, church grows straight and strong. The bride, deep, deep love and affection. The body, do work, son. Do something. Be Christ. Be the hands and feet of Christ, if that makes more sense. Let's pray. Lord, your words have been um, challenging. <laughs> Lord, forgive us for when we, we, we think that life is actually about us. When, Lord, it is, you do use us, Lord, and, and you've done great things in us, Lord. But Lord, forgive us when we, we forget that um, it's about you. Lord, I pray that our affections and our love would, as we read your scriptures, Lord, that we would actually love and admire and appreciate the same exact things that you do, Lord. Lord, help us not to just go off on our own, do our own thing, Lord. Keep, thank you for your word that washes us and keeps us straight and brings us back to what is right and what is good. And Lord, when it hurts, Lord, um, would you help us through that? And Lord, may we speak encouraging words to one another the rest of this evening. Lord, may as we gather on Sundays and scatter the rest of the week, Lord, may we be your body, Lord, at work and at school and the family and all these places, Lord. We'd ask for your help, Lord, because we're, we're pretty slow. 
And um, we ask all these things in your name. Amen.